Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for the truth that's found in your word. We thank you for the revelation that is here. Lord, we ask that as we uh, continuing, continue to worship you through um, the studying of your word, Lord, we ask that your spirit would guide us. May he illuminate uh, the meaning of the passage. We ask, Lord, uh, that you would meet each one of us, Lord, in the, um, the place where we are, uh, that you administer to us through your word. Lord, I, I come to you with you know, a bruised heart today, and so I ask that you would, Lord, help me um, to get through this passage. Lord, I thank you for uh, our church family and just being able to worship with one another. Lord, we thank you for the strength and encouragement that comes through this setting. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. I, uh, a few weeks ago, Scott asked me what the secret is to speaking when you have tears in your heart. What I forgot to tell him is to come prepared with Kleenex. <laughs> And uh, today I I approach this text uh, with with a heart that is really bruised and uh, sensitive right now. Um, Yesterday, um, one of my best friends from high school, his wife has been battling cancer, and he called and she had passed yesterday morning. And um, we have kids our age, and so so it's a a tough time right now, and... uh, I, this is good. This text is really, there's a heaviness to it. There's an appropriateness to it. And uh, coming to church and worshiping and studying the word, I, I get just as much out of it as I'm teaching. And so, but in, in, I don't know, unfortunately, the reality today is I'm just dealing with, with some pain. And so, um, but there is no greater passage than the one I'm in right now, dealing with death and sorrow and and things that we go through. And so we've, <clears throat> we're nearing the end of Revelation. I'm trying to get my, my Kleenex are kind of, they're not staying independent of one another. And so we come to the great scene at the end of Revelation. Um, we, as we look at this chart in front of us, an overview of Revelation, nice and big. The bottom line are events that are happening on earth. And the top line is sort of things that are happening in heaven. And then the numbers sort of reflect uh, the chapter of Revelation. And so if you were to outline Revelation in Revelation 119, uh, John is told uh, by God to, to write down the things which he has seen, the things which are, and the things that are yet to come. And so chapter one are the things that he saw. He saw namely the image of Christ, in all of his glory and all of his splendor. And the things which are is the, the period that we find ourselves in presently. It's the church age. And so during chapters 2 and 3, there were seven letters uh, written to the local churches there dealing with sort of a, an assessment from Christ over how they were doing. Chapters 4 and 5 took us up into heaven or took John up into heaven and and there's this glorious picture of worship in the, in the heavenlies. And uh, we see the Father, we see Christ, um, we see the, um, s- sort of the, 
the witnesses that are there seeing the scrolls and, and who's going to open the scrolls, uh, namely the judgments that were to unfold. Uh, there were 21 judgments, and then thus Christ comes, the one who is worthy to open up the scrolls, the one who's worthy uh, to bring judgment on a fallen world. And so then from Revelation chapter 6 through 19, we see the 70th week of Daniel unfolding. Uh, horrific judgments happened at the very end of it. Chapter 19, the very beginning part, we see the scene in heaven uh, of them giving thanks and seeing justice happening from a holy God. And things are in the process of, um, of being restored as God intended it. And so today we're picking up the second half of 19 all the way through chapter 20 which takes us to this point right here. And so in today's scene, we see the glorious advent of Christ, the second advent. It's the picture that the Jews really had been anticipating uh, the whole time on on the uh, Palm Sunday when they're all worshiping Jesus, expecting their great leader to come to free him from Rome. Uh, They missed the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. But the image that we're going to look at today is what they were expecting. We'll see that his descent will end with severe judgment for those that are ending in the 70th week. We'll see the ushering of the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand-year reign of Christ, following by the great white throne of judgment. So that's kind of the outline. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, I want to start here. This, this is a well-known passage. It's a passage that, we're, that instructs us to, to mimic uh, the example that Christ gave us on earth. And verse 5 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so we, ha- we have this picture of, of Christ, this, this humility that, that he is the one who spoke creation into existence, and yet he steps out of heaven to live as a man, to live as a poor man, to be ultimately executed uh, without committing any crime or any sin in the most shameful, horrendous way that that an individual could be executed. And he did it for us so that we might have life. But at the very end of this passage, we see that God has highly exalted him, that the story doesn't end on the cross. He went to the grave. He rose from the grave. He's been exalted to the very highest place in heaven. And it says that one day, I just want to point this out to you, one day every knee will bow of those who are In heaven, so those that have died, those on earth, 
those who are presently living, and those that are under the earth, those who have died apart from Christ. So Paul tells us in Philippians that there's this day of reckoning that is coming where every person from, all, from, from the beginning of time to the, to the present, uh, the time that this happens, that everybody will stand before Christ and they will bow and they will give an account. And that's the story that we're looking at today. And so with that, let's turn over to Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. I, uh, how we're going to handle this is we're just going to sort of talk through this story. Uh, we're going to look at it. I'm going to make some comments. And really where this story, I think, leads us, or it, I felt where it leads us today is to communion. And so we're going to end with communion. Um, so verse 11. Um, so here the Apostle John is. He sees this, this image. He, he ha- he's lacking words. He sees this great multitude in heaven. Um, there's sort of this call and response of worshiping the Father. John is so overwhelmed by verse 10 that he falls at this angel's feet and begins to worship the angel. And the angel says, no, no, John, get up. Don't worship me. Worship God. Um, and he speaks of um, the majesty of Christ in his testimony. And as he says this, verse 11, we see, and I saw heaven opened. So heaven's going to crack open. Um, to sort of outline today's passage and, and into next week, this phrase, I saw, if you're one who writes in your Bible, um, I would circle this phrase. It happens something like eight times. And so, so this is sort of a, a point of delineation to help us to see the flow of thought through this passage. And so we're in our first section. So first, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So all throughout this section, the picture is that it's Jesus, but Jesus isn't right. He's just not named. It's not out in, hey, this is Jesus that we're seeing. We see this white horse. We see the one who is called faithful and true. A a horse in the Bible is a war animal. Jesus at his first coming rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, an animal of peace. Things are very different now. He's on this white horse. And so he's called faithful and true in righteousness. He judges and wages war. And so this is the very end scene of all of the judgment, this great tribulational period. Christ comes and he's going to finish up the war that's been going on. We read about him in verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems or crowns. He has a name written on him which nobody knows except himself. He, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, many say this isn't, you know, we quick are to, to point out that Jesus' robe dipped in blood is, is from the Lamb. However, the image seems to be here that this is Armageddon. This is a war that's happening, and it's, it's God's wrath that's being fulfilled on the, 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 the planet here at this time. Um, it's a brutal scene. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
This is, this is powerful imagery. Um, if you were to go back to John chapter 1, verses, the first 18 verses, we, we see that when John begins his gospel, he talks about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And we see this whole description of Jesus being the Word of God, that his people rejected him. Um, but, but John says that he came and he exegeted. He explained the Father that from human terms, that if you wanted to see God, you looked at Jesus. And in looking at Jesus, it's, it's the clearest picture that a human can see and understand of their creator. And here he's described as the word of God. Verse 14, describe the armies that surround him, that are fighting on his side. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads on the winepress of the fierce wrath of the God of God the Almighty. And on his robes, and on his robe, and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Glory, hallelujah. That's what comes to my mind, that old kid song. I love that song. Um, should have requested it for today, but I didn't have that foresight to request it. Um, but it's just, this, this is a scene of, of a warrior, and it's going to get worse. I mean, the, the, the ending chapter 19, this is just total annihilation, that the score is being settled, that the creator is coming and evil is going to be dealt with, uh, that the time of his mercy, his grace, it's, it's over. There's a, there's a reckoning of accounts. This passage has always stood out to me. And um, a, a number of years ago when I was in cemetery, as Rick says, you know, <laughs> I, I wrote my, my master's thesis on, on the Christian in combat and sort of like, what does the Bible say? Is there a call for, for pacifism? And I'm not a pacifist. I would love to be a pacifist. Um, but when I wrote my thesis, a lot of times what happens is when guys write theses, they, they, they present them to an audience that agrees with them. And, and I didn't want to do that. I, uh, well, I, I did it for the school's requirement. But then my brother-in-law had married a Mennonite girl. And her dad was a, a pastor. And then he was in big-time Mennonite circles with the seminaries and that sort of thing. And so as I was writing my thesis, I was sort of sending her dad... Uh, my chapters, and I said, I just want to represent a pacifist well. Like, I don't, I don't want to sort of build up my own understanding and then basically tear down the understanding. I want to be fair in, in what I present. And so at the end of, at the end of my thesis, I, I said, hey, can you, do you have anybody you could forward this to for like a critical review? And he said, I do have a seminary professor in Spain that, that he's an extreme pacifist and he would be more than happy to look at your thesis. And, I, and he's like, are you sure you want me to do this? And I said, yeah, I don't know the guy. Like, I'd love to hear, you know. And, and uh, so a couple months goes by, and I get an email uh, from my brother-in-law's father-in-law. And he said, hey, I got the review back. Are you sure you want it? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And, and uh, he basically said, well, although he's a pacifist, he's not very passive in his review of you. And... and uh, 
So I saved it, of course, and so when anybody asks me for my thesis, I pass on both, sort of the, his analysis. And he started out with some kind words, and, and uh, at one section, because I brought up this section, this, this image of Jesus doesn't fit with our image of Jesus. It, do, it doesn't fit with the Swedish guy that's going around just kind of healing people and being nice. With like, I mean, Fabio, like most of it, it's like this image of Jesus doesn't fit this image. And so at one point I said that the, that the image that Revelation points to is this Jesus, there's nothing that looks like, a, like passive about this. This looks really aggressive. And I'll never forget the guy's line. He's like, well... All I'm going to say is, I don't agree with Hansen's interpretation of Revelation. And, which is, you know, it's, and they would, they would, they take this and say it's allegorical, it's not what, what's being presented. But when I look at this, I don't think this is allegory. I think that this is a, what John, what John saw. And then he says in verse 17, then I saw. The, the next section, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all Men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. So basically, there's this call from the angels to the vultures of the air around the world saying, you guys are about to have a great barbecue. There's going to be so much slaughter, the death everywhere, you guys are just going to be able to feast. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to see video, or I doubt you guys have been to uh, there's something called a sky burial or a burial at sky, uh, really popular in Tibet. I guess it's like a tourist attraction now. But I've seen video in parts of that world where when, the, when humans die, they basically take the bodies up onto a hillside and these vultures come and just devour uh, the, the human flesh. It's how they do their burials. And when you see something like that, you can't unsee it. And to see how fast a vulture can basically dismantle a human body. And this seems to be the picture. John says, I see this. There's so much death and destruction. There's horses, there's humans, there's kings, great and small. And then this person's going to release to these birds of the sky, and they're going to come up, and they're going to consume all the flesh and clean it up. Verse 19, and I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him, who sat on horse and against his army. So there's a group of people who are standing against the returning king. Verse 20, and the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence, by which he deceived those that had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire. So the two are the beast and the false prophet who were deceiving the people. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword 
which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all, all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is a, just a, I don't know about you, but this doesn't fit with the image that I have pictured of Jesus. But this is this great tribulation, and it's the very end of it, that no unbelieving person will cross over into the tribulation period. And so this, this is the sort of the, the end line of Daniel's 70th week. And as we then go into chapter 20, we see, we're going to see the millennial kingdom where Jesus reigns and rules, and government will be governed as God intended it. Um, sin will be dealt with. Um, then we get into chapter 20 when we see the new heavens and the new earth. But as we get into chapter 20, verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding onto the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. We're going to see this phrase, for a thousand years, six times in the next few verses. Every, like, just the indication from the text itself and the context here, this seems to indicate that there's, that when it says a thousand years, it's literally speaking about years. And there'll be this period of a, a millennium, which we are familiar with. Um, so in this first section, Satan is bound for a thousand years. I've heard it described, um, the transition through this chapter where we see that they're bound, they'll be released for a season, and then they'll go to judgment. I've heard it described as the difference between jail and prison. Now, assuming that most of you don't know what the difference is, <laughs> jail is sort of a temporary holding facility. You can stay there for a year or two years or however long, and then eventually when your trial and everything comes, to, comes into play and you're tried before a jury and everything is sort of settled and you get 20 or 30 or life in prison, at that point then you're transferred from jail into prison. So you can be uh, in a permanent sort of holding tank uh, that has sort of two different meanings. And so we see this binding of Satan and we're going to see this sort of temporary hold of some individuals until the end of the thousand years where judgment will happen. Okay, verse 3. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay. If you grabbed your bulletin, there's an insert. If you didn't grab a bulletin, there's an insert out front. When you leave, I put my... In 
we're not going to spend a lot of time here. On one side, there's a description sort of of the resurrections. I think Brian's going to go get the inserts. Is that what you're doing, Brian? Maybe he's just going, I don't know what he's doing. So he, I think that's what he's doing. Um, so on one side, there's a little description of the resurrections. On the back side, there's a little chart from Charles Swindoll that says, what happens to a person after death? Very uncanny that this was done, and then I get the call yesterday, and we all sort of like wrestle with this. And so there's sort of a, there's an explanation on this chart. So Brian has the, the little pieces of paper. So if you just want one, you can raise your hand up. Um, so in this section, what, we, what we're reading is on earth, my theological position that I believe what happens the church age at this point, according to 1 Thessalonians 14, before the 70th week, that basically Christ meet, pulls his church out of, out of the earth. And it's 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 through 18, uh, the church is caught up. I believe that then this 70th week of Daniel happens. Um, during this period, there will be individuals who come to faith in Christ. It will be extremely terrible for them, especially at the three-and-a-half-year mark. Uh, during that window, we are told that there are individuals who give their lives to Christ, and they refuse to recant. They refuse to, to bow their knee to the ruler of this age and they'll be executed for their faith. This is called a martyr. There have been martyrs ever since you know, the, God's people existed. And so at the section of Revelation that we just read is that these, these saints during this window who were executed for their faith, at this point at Christ appearing, they are going to be, their, their, their earthly bodies are going to be resurrected from the dead. Um, that's what it says there. In verse 4, yeah, verse 4. And then in verse 5, it says, the rest of the dead <clears throat> did not come to life until the end of the thousand years were completed. And so it says that at the end of this thousand years, there'll be another resurrection. I'm not going to cover all of this. I gave you a little piece of paper with a chart that explains it. So you have your, you can, if you're interested, you can look at all of that. Um, but we see that there's a, t a different timing of a resurrection. I do think this is important. I do believe, and we as a church hold to the literal resurrection of the body. Now, there's a number of different resurrections. And here in this part, we see that the, at Christ's coming, or second coming, these martyrs are going to rise from the dead. And they're going to reign, and they're going to rule with Christ during this millennial period. Um, verse 7, when the thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from his prison and will come to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false, the, the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we see this building of sort of uh, opposition to Christ and his leadership during this, this tribulation period, or this kingdom reign. Um, so speculation. This is the position that I hold to. There's speculation of what, what happens. Where do these people come from? 
if at the end of the tribulation, Christ and his judgment, and only uh, there'll be people who have been resurrected, who are with Christ in their new bodies, who are reigning and ruling. First uh, Thessalonians four seventeen through 18 says that when the church is raptured, where Christ is, there will be also. Um, we see that the resurrection of the believers during the tribulational period will be reigning and ruling with Christ during this period. But there will be believing people who live and cross over is, is the thought. So a, a generation of, of people in their earthly bodies will cross into the kingdom and almost immediately um, there will be babies that are born. And I forget, I should have written it down. Some speculate, I think, that 30 or 40 generations, I think is my number, don't, I, whatever. In, th- in, a, in the thousand years, they speculate that you can have 30 to 40 generations of people and so the children of these people that enter in, just like now, they may or may not accept Christ and who he is. And so it's speculated that at the end of this verse 10, that these people who are rising up against Christ are people who were born during the millennium who never chose to follow him. And as Satan is released, they're wrangled up and, and they basically attempt to overthrow him again. This is kind of, we have what we have here. It's speculation. When we get there, we'll have more details, right? (laughs) Um, Okay, verse 11. So then after all of this happens, verse 11, we see what's referred to. uh, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And so all of a sudden, John says, I see, like as all of this is unfolding, because remember, this is just a vision that John sees of the things that are unfolding here. He didn't actually, these things haven't happened yet. And so at the end, as this happens, all of a sudden, he sees this great white throne, and here um, there's there's the judgment seat of God. And the trial's about to go down for the transfer between jail and prison. And so as he's sitting on his throne, verse 12, he says, and I saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. One commentator pointed out, which I really liked his observation. So we see the picture of the books. There seems to be um, two books. Um, Books were opened or maybe more than two, because there's books, plural there, and another book which is open, which is the book of life. So there's the book of life, and then there's the other book, like maybe like the book of deeds. Um, and so the dead who were raised from the dead, now all people of all times will be resurrected for judgment before God. And one commentator points out, he judged from the things that were writ- written in the books according to their deeds. Uh, the commentator pointed out that this is almost, it's God's last act of judgment on the people who have rejected him. So instead of just casting them in to eternity separated from God, which is known as hell, the people are going to know exactly why they're being treated this way. So it's a form of grace that God would show them their sin. And I can't imagine the feeling of one who has rejected Christ to stand before their creator And for their creator, our creator, to say, I tried to rescue you. Everything I've placed in your life, uh, Acts chapter 17 says that we each have been placed in 
the, the point in history and the geographical location and all of these events happen to us to, to point us towards God. It says that we might grope for him. Uh, and the image is as a blind person using their hands. And so God has done all of this, and yet there are many who will go to their death not acknowledging him. In the last 24 hours, my friend who passed away, there's a whole lot of uncertainty about where they stood with God. And this is like, you know, wrestling through, trying to sleep last night, you know, because we're all human. And so we weren't designed to face death. And so when, we, when we're faced with death, it's something within us, just it doesn't sit right. And so we, we grapple and we're faced with our, like the thing what we really hate about death is we're faced with our own Time is coming. And the older we get, the faster the snowball seems to be rolling down the hill, you know. And so here, these people who rejected God's display of grace, in his last act of grace, he shows them the fairness of it all. Because we all think, well, it's not fair. Whether you die... In the womb or you die at 110 years old, life goes awfully quick. I remember when I emailed my, I tend to email, email my dad important information now because he can't really hear me that well. So I emailed him, hey dad, I just want to let you know that Terry passed yesterday. And he responded back, he's like, sometimes life just doesn't seem fair. Like here I am, an 85-year-old man and this young you know, 40-year-old woman with four, three kids is taken. And so we tend to want to shake our fist at God and say, it's not fair. We don't want fair with God. And I think that these people who have rejected Christ at the very end will, as God is reading the books of their deeds, say that wasn't fair. He said, I gave you so many opportunities. You're the one who rejected me, not I that rejected you. And so I think there's a great warning here. Then we go into verse 13. The sailor in me loves the first half of verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead. Like to think of all of the people who have died at sea over the years. I think of during my dad's generation that there was a man who was shot in the back of the plane and they couldn't get him out and so they did a burial at sea where they, like back in the, I think it was like in the the 40s, 50s, 60s, I forget that, I think... So many people that have perished at sea. And so we're told that if you are lost at sea, your body will be resurrected. Those whose ashes were scattered at sea, God will gather up all of your ashes. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Every person who has died up to this point, who was apart from Christ, that those that were with Christ are with him in spirit already. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So everyone who's rejected is judged, cast in a lake of fire. Then God takes this whole thing that we know of death and sin, and he's just like, I'm done with it. And he does away with death. 
this is the second death, the lake of fire, which, which is actually beautiful going into 21, that the day is coming when we no longer will have to shed tears over loved ones that have died. De- death is a consequence of sin. Entering into chapter 21, when we see the new heavens and the new earth come down, we won't have to deal with it anymore because it won't exist. And so verse 15 says, if, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So Revelation is not my favorite book in the Bible. It's just if we're going to be like, you know, like I'm really looking forward. We're going to do Mark after this, and I'm going to spend some time in the Gospels, get some time with Jesus. I'm really looking forward to it. I've enjoyed Revelation. But kind of reading 19 and 20 and going, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? What do I do with this? Yesterday, getting the call from my very dear friend, letting me know that his wife had just, like, literally had just breathed her last breath, and he needed me to kind of guide him on the next steps. And then to come to this verse, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I don't see any more important verse in the Bible or all the verses that have the same teaching. That there's a crossroad in each one of our lives. The reality is, is each one of us will die. Each one of us will stand before our creator. There's warnings all over the place. Choose life, choose life. Hebrews, today if you hear... The voice of God, don't harden your heart. God is pleading with us to get right with him because he sent his son so that we might have life. I want to take communion today because the image of communion, normally we we have Jesus on his last supper where he teaches over this last Passover meal that he had. And we see this, this humble creator, this gentle creator, this one who went to the slaughter as a lamb. And our minds kind of stop there. But in the night in which he was betrayed, in John 14, 6, Jesus looks at his disciples and he said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. This image of him in chapter 19 it's not been the image I've had in my mind when I, uh, when I see that verse. God is holy. And we are not. And we, we need Christ if we're going to enter into his presence. Um, if we're going to experience the, the joy, the peace, um, the, the promises of, of contentment and being able to endure these crises in our life, in this fallen world, we need him. And for those of us that know Christ, this whole scene that's unfolding in chapter 19 and 20 our perspective will be entirely different. A lot of times we see ourselves like, oh no, this is happening, I'm going to be with the troops. Well, if you're in Christ, your scene is kind of behind him, with him. 
I think this scene should compel us to, to have a sorrow in our hearts for those that don't know Christ. We should have a greater appreciation of gratitude that we see earlier on as they're worshiping the Father, they said, with, with thankfulness, with gratitude, understanding what the Father has done on our behalf. It's not a complicated transaction to get right with God. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that in him, you also having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So the gospel is simple. We're told that Christ came to earth according to the scriptures, that he lived a perfect life, and that he ultimately was put to death according to scriptures. There was prophecy leading up to this. He lived the perfect life. He made the perfect sacrifice. Right after this, in Ephesians 1.13, having listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. That's the key. Do you hear the claims of Christ? Do you hear the claims of the, the New Testament saying that Christ died for you? In order for it to be effective, it's belief. It's trusting in the truth, responding to the truth. And if you've responded, or if you haven't and you'd like to, it's simply in your heart saying, yes, I believe. I don't think there's some prayer. Like by the time you say some, like the prayer of salvation, you're already saved. Like I, the, it's in your heart. When the light bulb clicks on, you say, aha, I need him. At that moment, we're told that you're sealed by the Holy Spirit who is a deposit, a, a guarantor to the day of redemption. It's an entirely too simple transaction. It doesn't fit our economy, but it makes all the difference in the world. And so today we're going to take communion. If you'll turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I do want to review communion. So often with so many different backgrounds, it's, it's easy to lose sight of what communion is all about. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, the section we're going to examine is uh, verses 23 through 33. And we're going to kind of take it in reverse order. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33. We read there, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So this is simple. Uh, we're going to... In a few minutes here, we're going to pass out the elements, a little cracker and a little cup of juice. When you get it, just hold on to it, and then we will, we will participate in communion together. Going up to verse 27, we read, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick at a number sleep. That means many have died. So the first step that we're told about taking communion, communion, 
I believe in the beauty of these elements is it's the gospel in picture. So every time we take communion, we're confronted with the Christianity 101. We're confronted with the gospel. Here's a little cracker that's been broken. It symbolizes Jesus' body, which we'll, we'll look at here in a second. And then we have the cup, which is the new covenant in his blood. And if you've never been saved, if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never made that transaction, you're confronted with this is the barrier that stands in your way. Now, communion is for believers. I can't judge if you're a believer or not. I have, you know, that's, that's between you and God. I can give you all of the information. We're told that if you do this in an appropriate manner, death could result. And so we're confronted with the reality that Jesus loves you. He gave his life for you. The cost for, for putting this into your life, making the transaction complete, is believing that he did it for you. Now, if you're a Christian, when we're confronted with communion, it forces us to go back and to realize, you know what, Gunner's still a sinner. I'm just a saved sinner. God might have cleaned up a lot of parts of my life, but compared to God, there's a whole lot of work that still needs to be done. And so the first part that we're called to do is to reflect. And so the guys are going to come forward to pass out the elements. And and as this is happening, don't take them. Just hold on to them. Bow your heads and sort of reflect and ask God areas in your life that you need to confess to him. Father, we do thank you that you are a God of mercy that you're a God of forgiveness, that you're a God of second, third, fourth, uh, many, many chances. And Lord, as we take communion today, as we prepare to take it, I, um, I thank you for this time of reflection. Um, Father, I pray uh, for those that maybe lack assurance of salvation that you would help them to see the, the worth of the cross Your scriptures tell us that um, that as often as we participate in this this ordinance of yours, uh, that we're to remember the broken body of Christ, uh, which we have this symbol in our hand. Um, we thank you for the uh, the real picture behind the symbol, and that's our Lord stepping out of heaven and coming to earth and living the perfect life and that he would go to the cross on our behalf he took a horrific beating that many wouldn't survive and the nails were placed into his wrist and his ankles and he died and we thank you that in that he absorbed the wrath that was due all of humanity, uh, that it was paid in full, not in part, as the old hymn says. The author of Hebrews makes it clear that this was a once and for all sacrifice, that it was sufficient. And Lord, we, or I confess, that it's so easy to go about our life and 
to look at ourself and our, our uh, humanity, our sinfulness, and to think that, that, that we're not good before you. And so, Lord, as we take communion, we're reminded that um, we're to put our eyes on Christ, not ourselves. And so I thank you that his work on the cross was sufficient. We thank you uh, for the blood that was shed, uh, for this juice that symbolizes the, the new covenant in Christ, that uh, he doesn't cleanse like the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which only covered the outside and and after the sacrifice, immediately they were cleansed. But the author of Hebrews tells us that uh, Jesus' blood cleanses to the innermost conscience, deep, deep within. Nothing else is able to cleanse us like the blood of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for his blood that was shed for us. And Lord, as we read this passage in Corinthians, we're told that a day is coming when we will no longer do this. Uh, one day you will return for your church and another day will come when you come for your people of Israel. And Lord, we long for that day. We long uh, for the day that uh, sin is done away with, when death is done away with, but Lord, we ask that as we look at today's story that you would um, compel us, Lord, to have your eyes and your vision for the lost. Um, we're told here that as we take communion, we're reminded to proclaim Jesus' death until you return. And so, Father, we confess that uh, maybe our heart for evangelism is not as passionate as you would like it to be. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to uh, not allow our insecurities and our fear and, and our um, being afraid to share with those around us that don't know you from, from keeping us from doing that. And so, God, we ask that you would help us to, uh, to, to, to be used by you, Lord, that we would uh, be willing to share the good news of what Christ has done for us. We love you, Father. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.